Well, good evening. It is good to be here with you this evening. I always look forward to the opportunity to be here at, at Buford. Uh, I've got so many friends that I've made uh, over the years, having preached at Duluth for, uh, well, it was almost five years, actually. And uh, I've got to know so many people here. I, I hate that the Elliots uh, tested positive. They were, my, they were actually my next-door neighbors when I lived in, in Duluth, and I rented a house from them. And so I was really looking forward to seeing them tonight, so I'll have to shoot them a text and let them know I'm praying for them. Hope they, hope they feel better. But it's so good to, to be here with you. I, I appreciate the uh, invitation to be a part of your summer series, and uh, I look forward to our study tonight. If you'd like, go ahead and be uh, opening your Bibles uh, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and uh, the title or the name that you've assigned me, as Kyle said already, is, is the firstborn. Jesus is referred to as, as the firstborn. And I, I want to use Colossians chapter 1, uh, specifically verses 15 through 20 uh, this evening. I want to start here, and then I want to finish here with a, with a few uh, points. Uh, but you see that title used here a, a couple of, of times. If you want to read this uh, with me. Uh, verse 15, Colossians 1, verse 15. And he is, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, invisible, uh, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, and here's our title again, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Charles Ponzi, he's born in the late 1800s, lived to the mid-1900s. He was born and raised in, in Italy, but uh, when he was 21 years old, he, he sailed to the United States. Uh, for several years, he moved around in the United States, and he even went up and spent some time in, in Canada uh, before he came back to uh, Boston in 1919. And it was there in Boston in 1919 that he first discovered what's called a IRS, uh, International Reply Coupons. Basically, what an IRS is or an International Reply Coupon, what that was during that time was, let's say... Um, you lived in a foreign country, and I wanted to send you a, a letter. Of course, they didn't have cell phones back there. They didn't have email back then, and, and so they corresponded, uh, writing letters. And, and so I, would, I could go to the local post office here in the United States, and I could buy these coupons. That's basically what they were, these international reply uh, coupons. And I could write you a letter, put that letter in the envelope, put that coupon in the envelope, mail it to you in a foreign country when you got that letter you could open it read it and if you wanted to reply you could take that coupon and it pre-purchased your coupons wherever you were well what ponzi found out was 
he could purchase those coupons in foreign countries where the economy was not quite as strong as U.S., and then he could sell them here in the United States at face value and, and make a pretty significant profit off of it. And had he done that, that actually would have been legal. But what he did instead was he began to go out and find investors. And he promised these investors, he told them what he was doing with these coupons and how he can make a lot of money, and, and, he, and he told them, I, I, can, I can give you 45% return on your investment, 50% uh, return on your investment in 45 days, or in 90 days, if you can hold out for 90 days, I'll give you 100% profit. Those are the kind of promises he was making but in reality, what he was doing was he was taking the money from his investors, pocketing most of it, and when he'd get new investors, he'd give a little bit of that money to some of his older investors, which tickled them to death, and they liked to see that, that money, that, that return, that profit coming from their investment, and so they reinvested that profit, and it kept the scam going for about a year. But in 1920, the whole system collapsed, and it cost all of those investors $20 million. That was a lot of money today. In the early 1900s, and you're just talking about 10 years from the Great Depression, that was a lot of money. Well, Ponzi was uh, arrested. He spent 12 and a half years in a prison here in the United States. He was deported then back to Italy, where he lived out the rest of his life. And it's, it's not often... Uh, that a crime is named after the person that, that committed it, but that's what happened with the Ponzi schemes. You, you recognize that. They, they still take place today. Probably the most infamous, uh, uh, relatively uh, close to uh, in our day, would be that of uh, Bernie Madoff, who cost his investors $65 billion. And I, I think about people like that, that, that fall victim to those scams, and you see different kinds of, of scams today, and, and I think about how awful and, and how devastating that would be to, to fall victim to a, to a scam like, like that, to, to find out that you've been investing your hard-earned money, that you've been, maybe some have invested their life savings or what they thought would be their future retirement, only to find out that at the end of everything, there's insufficient funds to be paid back. That, that'd be horrible. That, that'd be awful. But I can think of one thing that would be worse than falling victim to some kind of scam like that and, and losing all of your, your money. And, and that would be buying into the, to the lies of Satan, the, the scam that, that Satan runs which is you can invest your hope and your trust and your life's meaning in this world, and that will pay off at the end. How awful, how devastating would it be to come to the end of, of one's life and, and find out you've misplaced your life investment, and there are insufficient funds to be paid for your eternal soul. Well, when you come to the, the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the, to the Christians at, at Colossae, 
one of his main focuses, one of his main points that he reiterates over and over again throughout this, this letter is the all-sufficient nature of Jesus. Uh, the fact that if you will invest in Jesus, if you'll put your hope and your trust in Jesus, Jesus can supply everything that you need. Everything that you need spiritually, everything that you need to live this life and to be welcomed into the eternal life that is to come, Jesus can fully supply you with all those needs. When you come to this letter, one of the, one of the questions that, uh, that a lot of scholars uh, ask is, what is the, they call it the Colossian heresy. What is the Colossian heresy? What they're saying is, is, is what is it that, that Paul is writing what, uh, what problem, what warning is, is, problem, uh, is, is Paul addressing when, when he writes these, these Christians here at, at Colossae? And, and, and nobody really knows, not, not anything specific anyways. There's speculations and, and scholars give their best educated guess as to, as to what he's trying to address, what problem he's trying to uh, address in, in, this, in this letter. And, and although we don't know what specifically he's trying to Address. We can infer a little bit as to uh, kind of the general idea of what was, what was going on. What seems to be happening is that there must have been some kind of, of false, uh, false teaching, some kind of uh, very harmful influence, uh, dangerous persuasion that was being taught in, in the area. And, and, and this dangerous persuasion, this dangerous influence, this false teaching was basically saying that you need, in addition to Christ, in addition to Jesus, you need some extra wisdom. You need some extra knowledge that's not found, it's outside of Christ, it's not found in, in Christ. You, you need some, uh, some extra uh, understanding, some, some extra instruction, some extra teaching in order to, to reach a higher spiritual level. Now, Paul doesn't come out and say that, but... We can infer that by some of the things that he writes. If you skip over to chapter 2, just kind of get a little bit of context. Because what I want to do is, is as we work our way towards this title, Firstborn, I want to start big and then work in so you kind of have a better understanding of what he's doing when he uses this, this title, Firstborn. So, so notice how Paul addresses uh, this, whatever it is that's, that's plaguing them or, or maybe it's, it's creeping its way towards them. It hasn't hit them yet, and so he's forewarning them. But if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining all the wealth, look at that, all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in true knowledge, of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, underline it, and knowledge. Now notice why he says this, verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive arguments. What's a persuasive? A persuasive argument is an argument kind of like a Ponzi scam. On the surface, it looks good. On the surface, it, it might make sense. Here, I've got some extra wisdom. Let me, let, me, let me tell you about it. Let me, whatever this extra knowledge was. And, and Paul's saying, don't let anybody persuade you. All the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the treasure that you need 
to be fully supplied by Christ is found in Christ. He continues with this. Look at verse 8. They're still in chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. He's saying don't fall victim to this. Everything that you need to be made complete, everything that you need, that, that word complete means to be made full, to be fully supplied. He says you can find that in Jesus. One other, he, he, he broaches the subject again. Look towards the end of chapter 2, verse 21. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, these are matters which have, to be sure, notice, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so once he, he says it has the appearance, it seems wise on the, on the surface, but it's part of something that's going to perish. It's part of this world. And it's a scam. And in the end, you're not going to get anything, you're not going to get anything out of it. And so when we come back to our, our text, verses 15 through, through 20, and really the context that, that precedes it, if you, if you look back at the, towards the middle of, of chapter 1, look at verses 9 and verse 10, where, where he's it's still kind of in the introduction of this, of this letter in this prayer. Notice his prayer for these Christians, verse 9 and verse 10, he says, For this reason also since the day we heard of it, and, and he's commended them. For the most part, they're faithful, they, they've obeyed the gospel, they're bearing fruit, they have, he talks about their unity, uh, their love in, in the spirit. And so it seems like for the most part they're doing well, and so maybe he's warning them about what's coming their way. But notice his, his prayer, verse 9 and verse 10, For this reason also since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of, of God. And so that's his, that's his prayer. He's saying, I'm praying that you will increase, you'll get your wisdom, you'll get your understanding, you'll get your knowledge from God. All that will come and, and be found in, in, in Christ. And so when you come to verses 15 through 20, he really doubles down on this idea of Jesus being all-sufficient. Notice, notice how many times you see like phrases like all in this. Go back and, and just kind of skim over it with me again. Um, the firstborn of all creation. Look at the beginning of verse 16. For by him... All things were created. You skip to the end of verse 16. All things have been created by him. Uh, look at verse 17. In him all things hold together. Uh, you see very similar language in verse 18, towards the end of verse 18, that he may have first place in everything. Uh, look at verse 19. The fullness dwells in him. The fullness of deity dwells in him. Uh, verse, verse 20 um, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. 
And so just over and, and over again, and it's not just limited to, to those verses. He continues with this idea through, throughout the, the letter and the completeness that's found in, in Christ and everything that you need is supplied uh, by, by Christ. But I, I guess it's a good point for us to, to stop and, and challenge ourselves with the same challenge that, that Paul is presenting to these Christians at, at Colossae. Is Jesus everything that you need? Are you finding your full, your life's fulfillment in Jesus? Are you finding your true happiness in Jesus? Are you finding your hope and your trust in Jesus? Or are you looking in other areas in this world? Do you need something extra? Are you looking for something more than what Jesus has to offer? Have you made money or your job your idol? And that's where you're investing your life. That's, that's where you're investing your, your fulfillment. That's where you're investing your, your happiness. Or, or maybe it's in a, a sinful relationship that you're find, finding your fulfillment in or, or some kind of sinful pleasure that one finds his or her fulfillment in. I don't know what the, what the case may be, but... But Paul is going to, to, great ex, to a great extent to say, look, one is a scam. If you're looking for anything this world has to offer, this world is going to perish and there's not going to be anything left to make the payments for you. But if it's in Jesus, he can cover it all. He can supply it all. And so that brings us to this, this name, this, this title this, this evening, the, first, the Firstborn. Names are, names are important. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I, um, look, I, when I turned 15, on the day that I turned 15, I went and got my learner's license because I knew it took it. You had to have your learner's license for a year, an entire year before you can get your, your driver's license. And so on the day that I turned 15, I was there taking my test so that on the day that I turned 16, I could get my driver's license. I talked to some of these teenagers today, and you've got 17, 18-year-old boys that don't even have their learner's license. And I'm like, what, you know, what, what, what kind of world is this? But I, want, you know, I wanted to drive as soon as I turned 16. And, and as soon as I passed that, that test on, the, on my birthday and they printed out my driver's license, I was so excited. And I hopped in the car, and, and or I had a, a blazer. And, and, and off, I, off I went, and I was so excited that I didn't notice that the police officer that had typed up my driver's license had misspelt my name. He had gotten a couple letters in my last name mixed around and a couple letters in my middle name mixed around. Now on the surface you might think, well, there's, that's not any kind of big deal. However, when you've registered for the draft with your correct spelling of your name, and they have an incorrect spelling of your name, Uncle, Sin, Uncle Sam starts to send you some very nice, not nice, very threatening letters for trying to what he thinks is draft dodging. Um, I remember getting my first, well, after I graduated from, from college, getting my first major job and uh, doing the background check and I put down the correct spelling of my name, and they said, Mr. Oglesby, we don't have any record of you having any kind of driving history whatsoever. whatsoever. That became a, a problem. Uh, 
and I've, saw, I've tried to correct this. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. The last time I ran into it was when I, I finally paid off one of my trucks five or six years ago, and they sent me the title, and they had the incorrect spelling of my name on, on, on the title. And so names are, names are important. It's, it's important that we get names right. And, and certainly when we come to the Bible, when we talk about names and titles that refer to, to Jesus, it's important that we understand we understand them. And, and when we come to this title, firstborn, even when we think about it today in, in our culture, it has some special meaning to us. You know, if you have children, your firstborn is, is special. He or she is, is unique. It, that's not to say that you, that you love him or her more than your other children. That, that's not what I'm saying. But, but that firstborn does something that none of the other children that follow, none of the other siblings that follow can do. That firstborn introduces you to, to parenthood. None of the other do that. They introduce you to this concept of, of love that you've never known, that you've never experienced in your, in your life. They introduce you to uh, depths of patience that you've never been tested with. They introduce you to the different phases of raising a child, which you got, what is it, newborn, and then uh, infant, and then toddler, and then child, and then adolescent or, or teenager. None of the, you, by the time you get to the other kids, you've already had a little bit of experience in those areas. The firstborn takes you through all of that in a unique way in a unique way. And so even in our culture today, we can see kind of the specialness of the firstborn or the uniqueness of the firstborn. And once again, that's not to say that we love one child more than the, more than the other. It's just different, and, and, and we understand that. But, but when we go back to the Old Testament, we go back to the Hebrew family, the, the firstborn had some significant meaning uh, to it. There were some uh, benefits that came with being uh, the firstborn in a, in a Hebrew uh, family. And so let's do that for, for just a second, just kind of get an idea of what the firstborn meant. And then we'll come back to Colossians chapter 1 and apply everything that we can, we can learn. And so go back to Genesis, and let's just start in Genesis chapter 25. Of course, you work your way through the book of Genesis, and you see all the genealogies. And, and Genesis 25 is not the first time that, a, that the term firstborn is, is mentioned. But it is the first time where we begin to realize the significance of what it means to be the, the firstborn. And, and that comes with the birth of, of, uh, of Esau and, and Jacob. You remember Isaac, uh, he marries Rebekah, but Rebekah is barren. And so Isaac prays that the Lord will bless them with, with children, to which God does answer that, that prayer. And Rebekah, uh, she becomes pregnant. And... Uh, and she feels this, this struggle within her, and, and she wants to know what's, what's going on. And so she asks God, you know, why am I feeling, uh, why am I feeling this way? And, and, and God says, well, you have two people, and you have two different nations in you, and, and one will be stronger than the other. And, and she says the older, God says the older will actually bow down and serve the younger. And so the time comes for her to give birth, and, and Esau is the first to be delivered. You remember, he was hairy, he was red, and he, and he comes out, but just separated by maybe seconds, if that, because remember, Jacob's holding on to his heel. Jacob comes out immediately uh, after, and you get a description of the two as they begin to grow and develop their, their personalities. If 
You know, if you've got more than one child, you know that they can be like night and day in, in some instances. And, and that's the case with, with these two. Esau's more of an outdoorsman, more of a hunter and a skillsman, and, and just really has an appreciation for, for hunting game, whereas uh, Jacob's not so much that way. He's more of kind of just an indoor, peaceful type of, of man, and, and that's kind of his, uh, uh, his, kind of his, his character. Uh, but look at verse 29. You're here in Genesis 20, 25, verse 29. And, and when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in uh, from the field, and he was famished. He was weary. He was tired. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am about to die, so of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and a little stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And so the first time that we really come across any kind of description of, of what it means to be the firstborn, we understand that it deals with what's called the birthright. That's, Kind of like the inheritance that, that one, would, one would receive. And, and Jacob, being the trickster that he was, he, he takes advantage of Esau's weakness. And, and Esau's kind of a little bit overdramatic. Uh, you know the individual, they get a little hungry and the whole world's about to come to an end. And I kind of see that in Esau, to be honest with you. Uh, but uh, he, he, he takes advantage of Esau and gets him to sell his birthright, his inheritance, uh, for for a bowl of bowl of stew. Well, what was the birthright? Well, we don't know exactly because the Bible doesn't tell us, and we don't have enough, We don't have any any kind of historical documents that date to this era of time that Jacob and Esau lived in. But but there are some documents that are not too far removed that have been uncovered, unearthed, and and they state that that basically the oldest, the firstborn, got a double portion. Of inheritance, so he would get twice as much as the rest of the siblings, God, and, and that pretty much that that's the way that God decides to do it when He sets and, and gives His law in and through Moses in Deuteronomy uh, chapter twenty-one verses fifteen through uh, seventeen. He makes that He makes that plain. He, he makes that clear that the oldest son, the firstborn, is to get a double portion of of the inheritance of of all the estate uh, that belongs to uh, to the father. You know, when you think about it today, um, most of the time, I think this is probably pretty common with, with most families, they try to divide it up evenly. At least that's been my experience when somebody's talking about their will and what they plan to give to their children through inheritance. And, and they might, based on a child's, you know, personality or, or interests, you know, if, like say like Esau, if they like to hunt and the dad has this shotgun that's been passed down through the family, they might give that shotgun to, to that particular son, but they'll make it up by giving something to another child that's of equal uh, value. And, and they try to, for the most part, keep it evenly distributed uh, amongst, the, amongst the siblings. And, and you think about a lot of what you get from, you know, your grandparents or if, uh, you know, your parents have gone on before you and maybe you've got something that was special to them. And maybe it doesn't have a lot of monetary value in the world, but it's, it's special to you because it was special to them. It was considered a, a, a treasure to them, and so it's a treasure to you. It's, it's worth value, sentimental value 
to you. And so you can understand, you know, the, in the Hebrew culture, they got a double portion of the estate, of, of what belonged to, to the father. And so that's the first thing that, that we learn about the, what it meant to, to be the firstborn uh, son in the, in the Hebrew uh, family. The second time is not too far removed from, from this instance. If you go over a couple of chapters to chapter 27, this one deals with, with the blessing. Um, Isaac's getting older. Um, he's actually probably only, he's gonna live, Isaac's going to live to be 180 years old. And, and here we don't know exactly how old he is, but he's probably somewhere in his mid Hundreds, and so he still has probably 20 or 30 more years to, to live, but he thinks that he's getting close to death for whatever reason. He's gotten weaker, uh, he's lost his eyesight, and so he wants to bless his firstborn. He wants to bless Isaac, and so uh, he, uh, he wants to bless Esau, and so he calls Esau in and, and uh, tells him that he wants him to go out and hunt and bring back game and prepare it the way that he likes it, the, his favorite dish, and so... Uh, Esau goes out, but Rebecca's been uh, listening, and she comes up with this plan to to cheat Esau out of his birth, uh, out of his out of his blessing, and, and she gets Jacob. Remember, she gets Jacob to go in and to act like he's Esau. He puts the, she puts the hair on his arms and on his hands and on the back of his neck, so he'll look and smell like uh, Esau. And and uh, first Jacob, he he's kind of. He doesn't want to do it. If you look at verse uh, 11 and verse 12, he's, he's afraid that, that uh, Isaac's going to recognize him. He says, And Jacob uh, answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will uh, fill me, and I shall be a deceiver in his sight, and I shall bring upon myself a curse and not uh, a blessing. And so uh, he's worried now. Of course, once again, you fast forward to when, when God gives the law in and through Moses, we see a couple of things that what Jacob's doing here was uh, strictly prohibited. Number one, they were to honor their father and mother, and he's not honoring his father here. Number two, they were not to take advantage of, of the handicap. They were not to take advantage of, of the blind. Leviticus chapter 19 talks about that. Uh, talks about a curse being on, I think it's in Deuteronomy, talks about a curse being placed on the one who misleads the, the blind. And so what he's about to do is strictly frowned upon by, by God, but I don't think he's so much worried about the morality of it, the right and wrong of it, as much as he is just the consequences of getting caught. He's afraid he's going to get caught. Instead of a blessing, he's going to get a, a curse. Well, he goes through with it uh, anyways, and you get down to, if you look at verse uh, 27, he's, he's finally convinced Isaac that he's Esau. And so he comes close and he kisses him. And when he smelled the smell of his garment, he blessed him and he said, and here's where you're going to get the particulars. What does the blessing mean? What is this blessing that belongs to the firstborn? What, is, what, is it, what does it mean? Uh, first, it, it, look what he says. See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. And so thinking that it's Esau, thinking that he likes to hunt, he's first and foremost wishing that God will bless the fields uh, with game for Esau to hunt. But then he moves to the, to the crops, uh, to the farming. Verse 28, Now God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and the abundance of grain and, and new wine. And then look at verse 29. 
he moves to this other, and this is kind of where I want to focus in on as it pertains to our lesson. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. And so there's a reiteration of the promise that was made back to Abraham, the, the promise that was made to, to Isaac, and now it's being made uh, to Jacob. Um, who's impersonating Esau, but, but it basically has to do with, with the family settling into the promised land and growing into a nation. And so when you think about it, he's kind of talking about the unity of the family here. The, the oldest, the firstborn, was to maintain that, that unity. They'd have a common uh, goal, a common purpose to, to strive together that would keep them, uh, that would keep them together. And so you've got the inheritance or the birthright. You've got this blessing that really speaks to the, the overall success that the firstborn is to provide for the family and keeping the, the family together and united and, and working, uh, working together. When you come over to Genesis chapter 37, you see Reuben. Reuben's the firstborn. He's Jacob's firstborn. And you see kind of his leadership. You see how he as the firstborn. He's kind of respected by the, by the other brothers. Uh, remember, they hated Joseph. They were going to kill Joseph. But in Genesis 37, Reuben talks them out of it. He says, don't, don't, don't kill him. Just, let's just strip him of his coat and throw him in the, in the pit. Now, eventually that results in Joseph being sold into slavery. That they listen. Initially, they, they listen to, to Reuben and it at least spares Joseph's life. And so you see a little bit of the, of the leadership uh, uh, that, the, that the firstborn... Uh, provides for for the family. Um, I was thinking about that this this morning. We in Morgan County we started school back, and, and my my oldest, my firstborn, she is four, and she started preschool. And this is really her first introduction. She went to a little Mother's Day program last year, but this is really her first introduction to Monday through Friday, full days of of school. And and she had a tough day yesterday. We were allowed to walk her into her class Monday and Tuesday, but today. She was responsible for finding her own way to her class. And my wife and I were a little worried about that. She's four years old. She's got to maneuver several hallways to get back to where she is. But it just so happens that my sister and her family also live in Madison. And her son, Cason, uh, he's actually the oldest. If you look at it from the grandchildren perspective, he's the oldest. He's the firstborn grandchild. And he goes to the same school. He's in the first grade. My daughter Harper is in pre-K. And so this morning, I took both of them to school. And, and as I uh, pulled off or, or walked off, I actually walked them up to the school and then turned around and walked back. We live pretty close to the, to the school. But uh, as I, I turned around, I, I looked back just to kind of make sure. And the oldest, the firstborn grandchild, had her by the hand and was just leading her into the school. And, and that brought a father some comfort to see that leadership, to see that, that example being set, that, that, uh, that leadership there. And then the fourth thing that I'll, I'll point out to you before we go back to Colossians uh, chapter 1, go to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, and, and look at uh, verses 1 through 3 as uh, Jacob is coming to the end of, of his life. And so he calls all of his sons, and he's going to start with the firstborn and work his way down to the, to the youngest. He summons his sons and he assembles them. And notice verse 2, he says, Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. And he starts with the oldest, Reuben. 
You are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in, in power. When you think of that term preeminent, that means excellent. That means outstanding. You think of somebody that maybe uh, holds a, a world record for bench pressing or a world record for the 100 meter that, that nobody has, they, they've held it for many, many years that nobody's been able to, to beat. That's, that's kind of what it means to be preeminent. And that's a description of the firstborn. It's just kind of the uniqueness of, of what it meant to be the firstborn, but he was to be preeminent over the rest of, of, of the siblings. So with that in mind and, and with what short time we have, let's go back to Colossians chapter 1. So you've you got that, the, the firstborn, the, it deals with the, the inheritance, uh, the blessing, and involved in the blessing was kind of the success that, that the, the firstborn was to have in, in providing unity for the, for the family. You've got the, the leadership, the example that the firstborn sets. And then you've got that preeminence, that status of being excellent or, or outstanding or, or just being a little bit above the rest of them. And that's what it meant in a Hebrew family to, to be the, the firstborn. Well, well, let's look and see how it applies to Jesus. Going back to verse 15, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, that's interesting that he says he's the firstborn of, of all creation. You know, typically when you think of the firstborn, the firstborn is literally the first child to be born in a, in a family. But not all the time is that term firstborn used to, to refer specifically to the firstborn child, the literally firstborn child, the first from the mother's womb. I'll give you a, a, few, uh, a few examples uh, for that. Uh, first and foremost, Israel, the nation of Israel. In Exodus uh, chapter 4, when God told Moses to go to Pharaoh, to, to tell Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go, he goes, you go tell Pharaoh that Israel is my son, my firstborn son. Well, Israel wasn't the first of nations. They were, I don't even know how many nations existed before Israel. But what he's saying there in that context is Israel has the status as if it were the, that everything that we kind of just talked about there. They set an example for the world. They have preeminence over the world. They're God's special uh, chosen, chosen people. Uh, this, you see the same thing with, with David. David is called the, the firstborn in, uh, in Psalm 89 verse 27 and yet you know that David was the eight of eight children. Uh, and yet God calls him his, his firstborn. He's just talking about the status, status the honor, the the privilege that David had over, over the rest. Um, Ephraim is called the firstborn, and yet Joseph, his, Joseph's oldest son was, was Manasseh. And so it, it, the term is used really just to describe some of those concepts that we just looked about at, at in, in the book of, of Genesis. And that's how it's being used here to, to describe Jesus. Everything that we just saw about the firstborn in Genesis that's what this, this term means as it describes Jesus as being the firstborn of, of all, all creation. He, has, he is connected in, in creation. It's not that he was created and then created the rest of the world. That's, that's what some people say. No, he is the creator. He's God. In fact, it says that in the beginning of verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. 
And then it says in verse 16, for by him all things were created. It's just showing his relationship to his creation. He is, is, he's as if he was the firstborn. He is that privilege, that status. And you see that here. Um, kind of flesh it out with me for, for, for just a, a second. Um, the idea of, of the inheritance, taking what he, he has, what belongs to God, the riches of, of God. Well, he, he shows us the riches of God because he is the image of the invisible God. When we think about the riches of God, what we're talking about are the characteristics of God. Maybe think about the fruit of the Spirit over in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, and, and self-control. Those are all characteristics that belong to God. They originate with God. Jesus showed us those. He showed us the riches of, of God. He showed us the as the... As the status of the firstborn, he has that inheritance, and he's showing us those riches that belong that belong to to God. The the blessings. Uh, think about the unity. Uh, all things are. Look at verse seventeen. All things are held together by him. By his word, he spoke this world into existence, and by his word, he provides for this. He's very much in touch with this world. He hasn't created this world and left it. He hasn't wound it up and said, you know, I'm going to come back in a few thousand years and, and see, you know, what's, what's going on. No, he's very much involved with this world, holding it together. He just kind of has that status of, of that description of, of, the, of the firstborn. Think about the leadership. Uh, all things have been created by him and for him. Our purpose is to serve him. He is to lead us, and we are to follow him. And, of course, you see the, the preeminence uh, there. He's, uh, verse 17, and he is before all things. And so there's that idea of, of being, uh, being preeminent. And then, of course, when you get down, you see this other description there in, in verse 18. He is the firstborn from the dead. Now, once again, he's not literally the firstborn from the dead. We can go back to several examples. Elijah brings somebody back from the dead. Elisha brings somebody back to the dead. Somebody actually falls in Elijah's grave and comes back from the dead. Jesus raised several from, from the dead. Uh, Jairus' daughter, the widow from Nain, he raised her son who had died. Uh, we know about Lazarus. So Jesus is not literally the firstborn from the dead. Once again, it's... It's describing, the, it's describing his preeminence. It's describing the fact that he's the firstborn from the dead, never to return to the dead again, never to return to the grave again. All those that were raised by the dead before Jesus, they all died again. Jesus was raised from the grave, and he ascended to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of, of God. So once again, it's just describing his, his preeminence. And so what, what does that mean what does that mean to us? It's interesting when you look here in, in, uh, in Colossians chapter 1, you see a lot of the synonyms that are used for, for the church. You see kingdom, if you back up to verse 13, you see kingdom. That's, all, that's a term that's used to describe the church. Uh, if you skip down to verse 18, you see the body, which is described as the church. You see the term the church there. And, uh, and all of those terms have a significant meaning. The church means the called out. It's, we're the separate. We're separated from the world. We're separated by the blood of, of Jesus from, from the world. The body talks about our unity that we have 
in the body of, of Christ. You think about the kingdom. You think about his reign. What's missing from this, this list is the direct reference to the idea or the concept of family. You look over at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the church is called the household of God. That's the concept of the church being the family of God. And although it's not specifically mentioned here, that reference to the firstborn, it's a reference to that concept. It's a reference to that, that idea. If you go back to the Old Testament, you'll find that a lot of those firstborn sons in the Old Testament, they lost their, their birthright. They lost their privilege. They lost their status as the firstborn because of sin. Cain killed his brother Abel. And because of that, he had to wander the world as a nomad instead of enjoying the blessings of being the firstborn son. You think about Esau. Esau, because of his appetite for the flesh, he's no longer, he, lost that, he lost that privilege, that status as, as being the firstborn. Reuben, if back in uh, Genesis 49, if we would have kept reading there, um, after Jacob says what he says about Reuben being preeminent, he then goes in the next verse and says, but you've lost that status because Reuben had slept with one of Jacob's concubines and had defiled uh, Jacob's, uh, Jacob's bed. And so we see example after example of how the firstborn lost that status of, of being the firstborn because of sin. And yet when we look at the life of Christ, he never, not once, loses that status. He holds that status because he lived a, a, perfect, a perfect life without sin. And because of that, a double portion of God's inheritance belongs to him. But what's interesting about that is that he's willing to share it with us. He's not keeping it for himself. He's willing to take that inheritance that's been given to him as that status of the firstborn and to share it with us. The Bible talks about us being fellow heirs with Christ. He makes us a fellow heir uh, someone that's beside his, as part of the family of God, he makes it, he puts us in a right relationship with God, making God our Father, and he shares his inheritance with us. That inheritance being the eternal inheritance, the riches that God have, has to, to offer, not only in this world, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And so it's because of that he uses that term, Paul uses that term, firstborn. That's the argument that he's making to these Christians. Don't think that you can find anything that you need that this world has to offer because everything that you need, everything that's of importance, will come from the firstborn. He will give it to you. He carries that inheritance, the double portion, on his shoulders. And at the end of your life, there won't be insufficient funds. He'll be there with plenty, more, more than you need. Does that inheritance belong to you this evening? If not, why not? We wouldn't want to leave here this, this evening without giving you the opportunity that you can come to Jesus, that you can be added to the kingdom, you can be added to the body, you can be added to the church, you can be added to the family of God, placed in a right relationship with God because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. That you can come to Jesus this evening willing to believe, to repent of your sins, to confess him as your Lord and Savior and to be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, raised to walk in a newness of life. 
Maybe you've done that, but you've fallen away. Why not come back to Jesus this evening? If we can help you in any way, won't you come now while together we stand and we sing?